0: I genuinely believe that I am just an ordinary guy. I don't write for National Geographic. I, I don't have millionaires for parents. I just became determined to make these dreams come true. And, and I make mistakes along the way, and I have doubts, and I'm not perfect by any stretch.
1: That was Dan Greck of The Road Chose Me. Welcome to the Guy GPS Off-Road Podcast. I'm Wade, your host. In 2009, Dan bought a used Jeep, quit his job and hit the road. 12 years and three continents later, Dan is returning to his birthplace, Australia, for yet another journey of discovery. We'll dive deep into Dan's experiences on the Pan American Highway, his epic circumnavigation of the continent of Africa, vehicles he's used and experiences, ranging from being face to face with a silverback gorilla to hiking along a flowing river of lava. I think you're gonna be inspired to go on some expeditions of your own. No matter how large or small your plans, you're going to need a map, or maybe a few hundred. I use Gaia GPS to plan and then execute every trip I take. Overlanding, hiking, backpacking, it doesn't matter. With a huge variety of map layers nestled inside a Gaia GPS, whatever information I need is right at my fingertips, wherever I am. It even works with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, so you can put your maps directly on the dash. And if you don't have Gaia GPS yet, you're in luck. Just go to www.Guyagps.com slash offroadpodcast for a sweet 20% off on a premium subscription. That's www.Guyagps.com slash offroadpodcast. Now here we go with Dan Gregg from The Road Chose Me. Dan Gregg, hey, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today. How you doing, man? I'm oh, really good. Thanks, Wade. And thanks
0: for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, I think this is a first for me. I'm talking to you in my tomorrow and you're talking to me and your yesterday because we're on the opposite sides of the international dateline, however that works out. But uh, it is definitely great to, to have you here. For our few listeners out there who might not know who you are, how about giving us a brief rundown of your background? You're Australian born, is that correct?
0: That's right, Wade. Born in Australia, um, finished university here and then moved over to Canada and a little bit of time in the US and then sort of got bitten by the overlanding bug more than 10 years ago now and set out on a little trip and I drove from the top of Alaska to the bottom of Argentina. So that was through 17 countries, 40,000 miles, which Completely changed my life. I became so addicted and so passionate about overlanding. And then after years of saving money and planning and preparing, I set out on my second big expedition, which was 54,000 miles all the way around Africa. So all the way down the West Coast, all the way back up the East Coast through 35 countries. And again, I imagined it would be a big adventure and it turned out to be a thousand times bigger than even I knew was possible. It absolutely changed my life and now here i am i'm actually in australia right now just about to set out on my third big expedition which will be all of australia in the coming 12 to 18 months or so
1: so you said you went to university and you didn't really start off in this overlanding life you were following the normal path that most uh, young men follow uh university got a job what changed that it's
0: funny you know i i often reflect on this myself um I was 27 years old at the time and I enjoyed my job. I worked with really great people. You know, I I genuinely enjoyed the work and the people I worked with. But I I looked around over the course of maybe six or 12 months and there were people in the office who were more than double my age, nearly even triple my age, still doing exactly the same thing that I was doing. And it, it kind of occurred to me if I just, come here every day, this will be my entire life. This is it. This this is what life is. I just sit at this desk for eight hours a day for the rest of my life. And all things considered, life is relatively easy. You know, my bank account was going up every two weeks. I didn't really have any stresses. All I had to do was go to work. But it it just didn't feel very fulfilling. I just realized I mm. wanted more than that. And I thought, I need to escape and, and get out and, and go and do something. Otherwise I'm gonna get trapped here. You know, we always call it the golden handcuffs. You get you get trapped at work and you sort of aim for retirement, but I was only 27. I'm like, I, I'm not ready to aim for retirement.
1: <laughs> yes, you were always fairly adventurous anyway. I mean, you're a skier, uh, love the outdoors. And so I would imagine being stuck in an office was a, a bit of a grind. Yeah, you know, I always struggled, Wade, sitting inside Looking out the window at the
0: beautiful mountains or the green grass and just thinking to myself, but I'm stuck in here. I want to be out there doing that. And instead, here I am. So, yeah, really, I think my love of the outdoors is what drove me to it, to sort of go seeking more adventure in more wild places. So you decide to go mobile.
1: You have this little Jeep and your first uh, major trip is up north. You're headed to the uh, to the Arctic Ocean. You get there and you turn around and start coming south. When did you actually decide to just keep going south? It kind of, it wasn't a single decision,
0: Wade. It was more like just a, a process or just a journey where I didn't want to load myself up with kind of the stress of trying to drive all the way to South America. You know, I, I'd never driven across an international border, um, probably save the the US-Canada border. You know, I'd, I'd never been sort of deep into Mexico. I didn't speak a word of Spanish I had no idea if I could even do it or not or or if I would enjoy it or if it would be safe enough. You know, I kind of had all of these concerns and questions and doubts. And so I just said to myself, I'm going to keep going as long as I'm enjoying it. And if I'm having a great time then and and it seems doable and safe enough, I'll keep going. But if I ever get to a point where I'm like, I'm just not enjoying this or this is kind of crazy, then I always had that option or I gave myself that pass where I said, that's okay, I'll just sell the vehicle and fly out and do something else with my life. I, I don't have to be sort of like stuck on this path.
1: Had you ever even heard the term overlanding
0: at that point? I never had, but be- before I hit the road, I did I did some Google searches to figure out if I could get the vehicle into each country and it seemed mm-hmm. doable, um, but I had never read anyone's blog who'd made the trip. I, there was no YouTube back then, there was no Instagram, so I, I hadn't followed anyone. And when I, was in, when I was in Alaska, I saw a motorbike that had Peruvian plates on it. And so I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, well, it, it can be done. That, that's all I need to know. <laughs> and then the first people I bumped into on the border of Mexico and Guatemala, I bumped into a young couple who'd driven up from the bottom of South America. And so we chatted for a good hour at the border. And that really sort of locked it in of like, They were like, yes, you you really can drive across all the borders. It's totally possible. You know, you can ship your vehicle. Yes, you
1: really can do it. So you said you you didn't speak Spanish whenever you started down. At what point did you decide that it would be a really good idea to be able to at least have some rudimentary uh, Spanish? I knew all along that I would have to learn.
0: And I think in the first week or two in Mexico, you know, I learned 20 words that were helpful. So I could buy gas and I could buy food, but I'd probably been in Latin America two or three months before I realized I needed to give it serious attention and that the trip was not going to be so enjoyable without decent Spanish Um, because I found, you know, like I could wander to a bar in the evenings and and get a beer, but I would just sit at a table by myself and, and if a local wandered over, they would start talking to me but I just, we just couldn't converse. And so after 10 seconds, they'd kind of be like, oh, okay. Yeah. And they'd just leave. And I realized I really wanted to be able to talk to people. I wanted to know what was their life like, what, you know, what is it like in Guatemala or El Salvador or what do they do on the weekends? You know, all those questions. And so I took a week worth of intensive lessons when I was in El Salvador and that completely changed my trip that just made it so much more enjoyable and so much more interesting i could banter with locals i could you know buy things from street markets it all just became like really fun and enjoyable at that point
1: yeah you don't feel quite so isolated obviously if you can interact and and enjoy it that's uh, that's great now you didn't just constantly travel you actually stopped for a while and worked a bit if i remember right it's been a couple of years since i read your first book but uh you had some pauses along the way to to enjoy some other things as well.
0: Yeah, that's right, Wade. I, I knew all along that the goal wasn't just kind of drive from A to B as fast as possible. You know, I'd, I'd saved money for so long. I had this amount of money, and for as long as I could make it stretch, I thought I just have bought myself time off work. So I've bought freedom and adventure. And if I can live in Ecuador for a dollar a day – why wouldn't I stay in Ecuador for as long yeah. as possible? Because it's stunning. There's so many things to do and see. And so yeah, when I got to Ecuador actually, I was that was a year into the trip. I was burnt out. I was lonely. I kind of thought about giving up actually just because I was a bit sort of without purpose. Um and so I managed a hostel for five months, kind of kind of randomly, but yeah, a hostel full of other travelers. And I mm-hmm. became the manager, the, the owners left, and so I ran the show. And it was it a fantastic way to, to recharge my batteries and talk to other travelers and get all inspired and excited again to hit the road.
1: Yeah. And it looked like you had some pretty good adventures outside the Jeep as well. I mean, hiking and uh, backpacking, you kayaked uh, among icebergs whenever you were up in Alaska. And then there was uh, one hike you took to an active volcano. That really struck me as being a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience.
0: It's one of those things, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Australia and As a little boy or as a teenager, I guess seeing lava is one of those things somehow it captivated me, but I just it's kind of like going to the moon. I just never thought that it would ever happen to me or that it would ever be possible. And so, yeah, in in Guatemala, there's a hike uh, to a volcano called Pacaya, and so we hike up for five or six hours, and there's actually lava coming out of the ground 10 feet away from me and just kind of flowing down the side of the mountain. And so I poked it with a stick. I threw a rock into it. I even roasted a marshmallow on the lava. It was it so was real. And, and, and then the whole hiking group had to leave. We had to hike down before it got dark. And I just didn't want to leave. I just stayed there as long as I could and, and then <laughs> had to come down in the pitch black. And, and still to wow. this day, it's one of those experiences in my life that I'm like, I actually can't believe that happened. It was incredible.
1: Yeah, standing right beside flowing lava. I mean, that's, that's just not your everyday experience by any stretch of the imagination. So you had to ship your uh, Jeep around the Darien Gap. Uh, for folks that don't know, what's the Darien Gap? Right, so when you get to the very bottom of Central America,
0: you're kind of in southern Panama, there actually is no road from Panama into Colombia. So you can't drive from Central America to South America there's a hundred miles or so of just jungle and swamp, and it's very marshy and very wet. And so what everyone has to do is ship their vehicle one way or another some sort of ocean freight to get it from Panama mm. to Colombia. How long did that take for the vehicle to make it to the other side? Mm, not long at all because it, it isn't very far. I think the vehicle was only on the ship for maybe 3 days, but the mm. paperwork on each end was was nearly a week on each end of of kind of drawn out, you know, customs paperwork and permissions and all that kind of stuff.
1: So most of the time, I mean, you're you're not necessarily off-road very much. You're following uh, normal roads, going through villages, larger towns, whatever. But there is one stretch, and uh, it's through a desert, that is really a, a very significant place where there's no support. And I'm drawing a blank on the name of the desert right now, but you joined up with a couple of other guys and worked your way across that. That's right, Wade. Yeah, we crossed the um,
0: the salt flats of a uni in Bolivia, The really famous salt flats, people have probably seen photos of the the stunning Mm -hmm. vastness. And then after the salt flat, you can continue on into the Atacama Desert. And so you're in Mm -hmm. the high altiplano of Bolivia. So you're at about, I want to say, 15,000 feet or 17,000 feet. And that's like valley bottom. You're driving along and then there's mountains above you. Wow. Yeah. And you drive through there for a few hundred miles or I can't remember now, four or 500 miles and there's just nothing and nobody just extremely dusty tracks and that was at the time that was the biggest remote adventure of my life and I absolutely loved it. I was so excited I couldn't stop smiling. I remember I had so much grit in my teeth because I was smiling so much
1: and then all the grit (laughs) kept going
0: in my mouth.
1: It was crazy. Oh, that's awesome. So you keep going, you reach Ushuaia, Argentina, which is the southernmost place that you can drive to. What happened to your Jeep after that?
0: Well, Wade, it was was a real bittersweet moment, you know, a a whole host of emotions of like elation at having completed my goal. But then also I felt just really empty because I had no plan of what I was going to do with my life after that. I, I really had no idea. And so I sort of was a bit listless and I ended up, I stayed in South America for another three or four months. I hiked all over Chile and Argentina, all through Mm. Patagonia. And then I I toyed with the idea of shipping the Jeep back to North America. But in all reality, it had only cost me $5,000. And shipping it back was probably going to be more than half of that. So it just didn't really make sense. And and it felt like the right thing to do to just sort of move on and do something else with my life. So I actually sold the Uh Jeep in Argentina and then sort of packed everything that I could into a backpack and then that was it. I got on a plane and, and left South America.
1: How long before you began toying with the uh, the next major expedition, the Africa expedition?
0: Well, wait, it, it's, it's funny when I think about that. I was pretty exhausted when I finished and I was kind of sick of living in a car and I thought, you know, it'll be so nice to get an apartment and have friends, cook proper food, go to the gym, all the things I really enjoy in life. So I was back for maybe about a month and I got a new job, an engineering job, you know, in a big company and all excited, moved to a new town, you know, got a place to live. And I think it was probably about hour number two at my new job. Sitting at my desk, I was like, (laughs) this is terrible. Like I'm not going to do this for 20 years. What? This is nuts. So it was like, I think that day I started running the numbers of like, how much money can I save? How many years is it gonna take me to save up so I can do this again?
1: <laughs> so two hours, it's nice that you gave it a real long time to you know see if it was gonna work. <laughs> you know, two hours, it's like, no, I can't do this. It just uh, felt so, you know, after years and years of adventures and being outside and mm-hmm. just
0: living every day as I chose to then right. be like locked in a box again and be like, oh. I literally just have to sit in this chair for eight hours a day.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a, quite a difference between sitting in a chair eight hours a day and sitting behind the steering wheel of your Jeep for eight hours a day. So you get this idea to do Africa. That had to be, at first, kind of seem a little daunting to you. Absolutely. It was It was scary.
0: It was intimidating. It was the big unknown. And that's why it was so exciting, because I knew if if I was going to go and have an adventure, I had to make it big. I had to... You know, Mm -hmm. not necessarily make it better or bigger than my first trip, but to keep myself interested, it had to be more challenging. It had to be sort of present new and interesting problems for me to try and overcome.
1: So you built another vehicle, and we'll get into your Jeeps a little bit more in detail uh, later on, and you actually uh, built it. And shipped it over to Africa, correct? That's right. And what was your start point for the Africa expedition? I decided not to ship it
0: into Africa itself because the okay. bureaucracy and bribery and paperwork just didn't want to deal mm-hmm. with it. So I actually shipped it from Canada to Belgium uh, because just because they have a huge shipping port there on the west coast of Belgium. And then I drove down quick smart from Belgium, France, Spain, and then there's a daily ferry that runs from the south of Spain across to Morocco. And so I, I had no idea you can actually see Africa across the Strait of Gibraltar from Spain. So I spent a couple of days camping on the ocean, getting up in the morning and looking across. It's it's <laughs> t- 10 miles or 20 miles or something. And I was like, oh, there's Africa. I, I've never been there before. I've never even seen it before. I, I guess that's where I'm going to go spend a few years of my life. and And so then caught the ferry and and started in Morocco. So in like the very northwest corner of the continent.
1: So you ran this basically counterclockwise around the
0: continent, correct? That's correct, Wade. Yes. South on the west coast and then north on the Mm -hmm. east coast.
1: You had sort of planned this as a, as a solo adventure, obviously, but you also uh, met up with other people and for a while you traveled with a couple that had a little bit larger vehicle. That had to be a great opportunity to sort of compare the Jeep that you were in with something bigger and the good and bad parts of those particular choices.
0: Definitely, Wade. Yeah, whenever possible, I would always meet up with other overlanders or travelers, you know, even backpackers sometimes mm-hmm. jumped in for a ride and it was always such a great and, and kind of enjoyable experience to camp with other people and yeah, learn from what they were doing and see, like you said,
1: see what the pros and cons were. Uh, What was the worst roads that you had to travel through? The
0: crazy thing, Wade, about the majority of Africa is even in most countries now, even the Congo, they have good paved roads. So if you wanted Mm to, you could do the trip probably in a Toyota Camry for most of it. Then you go off road and it'll be like a reasonable quality gravel road. and, And you might go 10 or 20 or 50 miles on that. And then suddenly and without warning and without explanation, it is a ridiculous swamp, mud pit, endless quagmire that could go on for a thousand miles. And there's Africa very quickly changes from like no problem to extreme problem. And, <laughs> and the real epitome of that, or the kind of the highlight for me, I guess, of that was the Democratic Republic of Congo. So it's the, the massive country that's on the West Coast, probably the most dangerous country in the world, probably the least stable And I crossed a section purely off-road, purely like mud galore. Took nearly a week of extremely remote jungle travel. And that was the wildest thing I've ever done in my life.
1: Yeah, I saw some of the video of that. That that was definitely some muddy roads. And I wasn't really even sure it was a road. It looked a little bit more like a hiking path at some point with the jungle growth on the side. You mentioned in the DRC there was no trash. Mm -hmm. You were kind of taken by that fact. Why is there no trash in the DRC? It took me quite a while to figure
0: that out. And and it's not true of the whole country. It was certainly no. the region I was in. And my understanding is that it's because I was so remote and there is so little money and infrastructure, there is nothing to buy. So you can't buy a bottle of Coke or a plastic bag and then throw it on the ground. They just don't exist. So people really were just farming with hand tools growing vegetables and they had their cows or their goats and that's their whole life. That's their whole world. There is, there were no vehicles, there were no gas stations, there was no electricity. There just is nothing of the modern world that far away.
1: So you would drive through these villages. Tell me the reaction that you would get from the villagers.
0: All across Africa, Wade, people just burst with joy and happiness and excitement. Children come running after the vehicle, waving and yelling, even I saw grown men jumping up and down with excitement just to see me, just to say hello, just
1: to, oh, welcome, welcome, for no other reason than they're, they're happy, joyous people. That's great. Going through Nigeria, I've always wondered you know, about border crossings and military checkpoints and those kinds of things, and uh, you sort of surreptitiously videoed your trip through Nigeria with the, the checkpoints and stuff. And I was, I really was impressed with your way of your strategy for dealing with those situations. Explain your thought process on how you got through, not only in Africa, but also uh, back on the Pan American, how you dealt with border crossings and all of that. Yeah, well, Wade, this is just something that I guess
0: I, I kind of stumbled onto over years of practice and it's just the strategy that i've come to land on and it really is just to be extraordinarily polite and patient and above all else just say thank you say please say no problem and just wait and usually everything will resolve itself so even when it becomes really obvious you know the police make up some infraction they say ah oh, there's mud on your on your driving lights that's illegal you have to pay me ten dollars and it's really obvious they're just gonna put that ten dollars in their pocket and it's not really a legitimate fine instead of just immediately arguing with them and sort of setting it up as a like you're wrong I'm right let's battle it out to see who wins I try to sort of turn that around and just ignore what they said and just be friendly be happy talk about the weather talk about their children Oh, it's beautiful here. I really enjoy your country. So I'm not really like setting it up as a confrontation, like me versus them. Mm. It's more like we're just here having having a talk. And and it was always funny. After sort of ten or twenty or or even an hour, they would be like, Oh, okay, man, you can go. Like, no problem. <laughs> they just they sort of lose interest or they get distracted or they're like Oh, I can't
1: really be bothered talking to this guy anymore. You can just go now. Well, they're probably trying to do a little bit of a volume business and you're just sitting there talking and being friendly and it just continues to go nowhere. <laughs> oh, where you really get the sense that they, they start looking around at like other vehicles that are driving past. And they're
0: like, I could be getting money from that other vehicle.
1: I better go over there. Yeah, I, I just got a real, uh, you know, with you when you are filming that, I just got a really big kick out of, out of watching of course, you could see their face and it's like, this guy's so nice, but come on, let's move along here. That's awesome. Obviously, when most of us think about Africa, we think about wildlife and you had some amazing wildlife encounters. Talk about the silverbacks in Uganda. Right, right. So
0: visiting the gorillas, um, you can kind of only do it in Rwanda and Uganda. Um, Rwanda mm. recently increased the price. It's about 1800 US dollars to go for 45 minutes Um, Mm -hmm. going in Uganda I think I paid 500 us dollars. And so that is by far the most expensive thing I did on the whole trip. And, and that's, that Mm -hmm. was a lot of money in my trip budget. And so I kind of really hesitated. I didn't know if I was going to do it finally decided, you know, once in a lifetime have to do it. And so I went to this sort of nature reserve and you hike up into the mountain, this volcano that's on the border of the two countries. And just sitting there among the bamboo are these silverback gorillas. And and at that point on the continent, I'd seen a lot of chimpanzees, a lot of monkeys and and all the other wildlife. And the gorillas were absolutely enormous to the point where my brain just did not comprehend that it was real. I kept elbowing the guy beside me and saying like, is this real? I, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. And so the best way that I can explain it is I sat about 10 feet away from the big male silverback gorilla. He was—he is 500 pounds of muscle. And so his head is about twice as big as mine. His hands are about twice as big as mine. And so just to, to be so close to such an awesome presence, it's still, it d- doesn't feel real. But there was nothing between you and the gorilla. Oh, no, no. We were just out in the jungle. Oh, and actually at one point he kind of huffed and came straight towards me. There was a guide with me, One, of the, you have to take a guide up there. And he just right. put his hand on my shoulder and said, stay still, don't move. And so the gorilla came straight at me, kind of like bluff charged me. And then at the last moment, he turned away and walked sideways. And at that point, I could have reached out and touched him. He was a foot and a half away from me. I mean, I didn't because <laughs> I'm not crazy, mm-hmm. but, but I could have. <laughs> yeah. I, I was that close to the, the big wild gorilla that I could have touched or
1: he could have touched me easily. Wow, what an experience. But there were lots of others. I mean, I remember reading uh, you talking about waking up. You had the Ursa Minor on that particular vehicle. So you're up a little bit high and you look out and every morning there would be giraffes or there are elephants walking by or whatever. Did you ever just get kind of immune to it?
0: I got immune to some of the animals, Wade. I guess there's lots of things over there called like Gemsbok that I guess look a bit like deer. Um, There's lots Mm -hmm. of zebras, things like that I suppose I got a bit immune to. But giraffe are just so majestic. Every time I would like stop and stare. Uh, elephants as well. Yeah. If there were elephants, I would turn the engine off and just be like, oh, I guess I'm going to sit here for an hour and watch. Yeah, certain animals, they're just captivating no matter what. And they just I just have been thrilled by them.
1: Where did your Africa trip end?
0: The plan all along, Wade, was to drive the complete loop. So the plan was to go up the east coast to Egypt, which is in the very northeast, and then I wanted to cross the top of Africa and drive all the way back to Morocco. Um, and that route used to be doable back in kind of 2010, I guess. But then there was the Arab Spring and all kind of the recent problems and civil war. And, and so it just became utterly impossible to get into Libya. And then Algeria as well is, has a lot of tensions with Morocco. And so sort of by necessity, the trip ended up finishing in Egypt. So I made it to the Pyramids, which was one of the most surreal experiences of my life. And then a couple of weeks later, I drove up to the Mediterranean Sea and I put the Jeep in a shipping container and I shipped it out, and and that was the end of the trip.
1: There's a photo of you standing on your jeep. Uh, I think you're you've got your foot up on the tire, there's a pyramid in the background, there's a fist pump going on. <laughs> a project that was about ten years in the making. You've essentially completed it. Describe that feeling if you can. Oh, Wade, it was a huge
0: flood of emotions, a huge flood of like happiness to to have achieved my goal. And at some point too, it it did just sort of turn into like dogged determination that got me there. It was a pretty good feeling to be like, okay, I I like I achieved my goal. But again, it was kind of this like uncertainty or this emptiness of like, okay, so I've dedicated 10 years of my life to achieving this now it's done like what am i going to do now i just have like this big void in front of me of i don't know um so again it was it was kind of mixed emotions um but i, I really enjoyed that day the, the pyramids are very touristy and there's a lot of people trying to sell you mm-hmm. junk and sell your camel tours and all of that and i actually just walked around and drove around the whole thing completely in my own bubble i didn't talk to anybody i didn't pay for anything it was uh it was kind of like I guess they say when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. I guess for me, <laughs> when I was at the pyramids, my trip flashed before my eyes, and i and I spent that whole day kind of
1: remembering all of the experiences and all the things that had happened along the way. I mean, just by the numbers, fifty four thousand miles, thirty five different countries, nine hundred and ninety nine days. That's some serious commitment.
0: It was, Wade. And I guess, you know, it turned into much more even than I planned. I, I originally thought that it would take about two years. Uh, and I originally thought I would go to 25, maybe 30 countries. So it just, it kind of snowballed. And, and I always say these trips become an entity of their own. They have their own personality. And at some point, I, I feel like I'm just strapped into the roller coaster and I'll just have to go where the roller coaster is taking me. And, and there isn't too much point in kind of fighting that or going against it. It's, you know, I, I was near the border of, for example, this little country called Burundi. Nobody ever goes to Burundi. It's really unknown and, and just this wild place. When am I ever going to have this chance again? I said, all right, I'm going to add a month to the trip because I want to go to Burundi. So I did. <laughs> you know, things like that where it's like I, I just have to sort of do it justice and it, it, I'd feel terrible if I looked back and I knew that I'd rushed past and I'd missed out on stuff like that,
1: yeah, and that's the freedom you have whenever you don't have a defined end date to your trip. You know, your trip is just going to be what it's going to be, and uh, and what you make out of it. Yeah, my trips run until the money runs
0: out. That is really my hard stop date, <laughs> and then and that gets weird too because then I I start being a bit crazy trying to spend less and less money because I want the trip to go for longer. You know, so there were nights where I just fried some onion and put it on rice, and that was dinner because I was trying so hard to save money. Right? Yeah, that, Those were the
1: lengths I went to to try and extend the trip. Looking back on the entirety of the trip, is there one country uh, that you would choose to go back and spend time in and why? I think,
0: Wade, there are a bunch of different countries for, for different reasons that I would go back to. Mm-hmm. If I was going though, as an overlander, Namibia stands out as absolute overland paradise. So it's just north of South Africa over on the West Coast and it has such a huge variety of deserts and kind of rocky mountains. It has coastline, stunning wildlife and it is really wide open in terms of you could fly into the capital city, rent a four-wheel drive and that afternoon you could be out wild camping in a dry riverbed and have elephants walk right past camp. And that's, that's not even difficult to do that. Like you can do that easily. And then you, can, you could go really remote and wild and go for three weeks, you know, needing to drive 2,000 miles and not see a single person. Or you can kind of hop around the game parks and, you know, see the more sort of visited areas. It's all there for you to choose. So it's, it's
1: really, really breathtaking. So Africa's done and the money's kind of tight at that point, but obviously you're not going back to corporate America. So what was next?
0: (laughs) I was, again, like I said, I was pretty lost, Wade. When I got back to North America, um, I actually toured a whole bunch of the Overland shows in summer of Mm -hmm. 2019. So I crisscrossed the US, I think five times that summer, shows on the West Coast, shows on the East Coast and everything in between. And so just touring, telling stories, kind of selling my books. And that was a really great way to, to meet more overlanders and, and see what other people are excited about and learn more about what other people are doing. And that was where I started sort of recharging my batteries and thinking about what comes next. And then so I came back to Canada and then actually was in Canada when COVID hit. And COVID really just sort of solidified the idea of like, well, I guess I'm stuck here for a while. I may as well start saving money and just see what I can possibly make happen when COVID starts winding down. And and so, yeah, it really became a game of like, try to get as many odd jobs as I can and save money to make the next trip happen. So
1: Australia becomes the next trip. And this is in a way coming home. And so people, I think, would probably ask the question, why would you go back to Australia, a country that you are already from, and I even thought about that myself. And But I thought, if I grew up on a farm in Iowa, do I know the United States? Probably not. You grew up in a portion of Australia, but you haven't seen all of Australia. That's right, Wade. I've seen extremely little of this country. I, I've
0: seen way more of the US and Canada than I have seen of Australia. Um, and I wasn't into four-wheel driving. I wasn't into overlanding. So the more I read about and learn about some of the iconic spots around Australia – I think to myself, like, wow, I I really want to experience that because I want to understand my own country. And people always ask me, you know, how did you enjoy the the north region of Australia? like, I don't know. I've never been there. Or or people say to me, Tasmania is incredible. You know, you have to get to Tasmania. And I'm like, you're right. I do have to get there. I I have no idea. I've never seen it. So I, I became sort of really interested in this idea of I've seen so much of the rest of the world what happens if I go and have a look at where I used to live and and now I have these fresh eyes and a different perspective?
1: What's your overall plan for this journey uh, in terms of where you want to go and how you want to do it?
0: The plan, Wade, is to go back to my roots a little bit. Um, I'm building up a vehicle that I guess is kind of halfway in between the two that I've had in the past, relatively simple vehicle, and just head out and try to visit as much of the country as I possibly can getting to like all of the really far-flung corners. So the extreme northeast tip is called Cape York where there's tons of mud and crocodiles and river crossings and all of that. Mm. Through the deserts in the centre, there's the world's most remote road, the Canning Stock Route, all the way across to the west coast where it's tropical white sand beaches and snorkeling. Kind of, kind of see all of the diversity and all of the far-flung bits and pieces as I go. Um, and every time I try to make some sort of route or some sort of plan – COVID gets in the way and wrecks it all. So so the plan the plan now is no plan. The plan is just go where I can, when I can. And, and hopefully over the next 12 to 18 months, I'll be able to see everything that I want to see.
1: Well, when you came into Australia, obviously you had to be quarantined for 14 days in a hotel. For a guy like you, I can't imagine how awful that really is. But you found some pretty amusing ways to keep yourself entertained. What is a didgeridoo? do? <laughs> A didgeridoo, Wade, is a traditional Aboriginal instrument
0: and you can think of it as like a big hollow tube of wood. It's actually a piece of a tree, but you can think of it like um, one of those cardboard rolls that you put a poster in to to send it through the mail. And so you blow through it a little bit like you blow into a trumpet or a trombone and it makes this really deep kind of resonating rumbling noise. And, it's yeah, it's a traditional instrument that... I've always been intrigued about and always wanted to learn so i thought if i'm stuck in a room for 14 days maybe it's a good time
1: to learn so how did the folks in the rooms around you feel about that
0: <laughs> i was careful not to play it late at night or early in the morning um and we had a we had a group zoom call with everyone in the hotel we, we played trivia and it was funny actually i one of the girls ended up saying like oh i think i'm in the room below you because i heard you skipping this morning i, I was skipping for my morning workout and, right. and so I asked her about the didgeridoo, and she's like, no, I've never heard it. I don't know anything about that.
1: <laughs> in, in your three Jeeps, uh, well, the first two Jeeps, let's put it that way, you have taken the hood of your Jeep and drawn a map of your expedition on it. Is that going to happen with uh, Jeep number three? Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's a, that's a must now. I think it's, it's
0: part of it, it keeps me excited and kind of interested and intrigued about where I'm going and where I've been and what's coming next
1: yeah, I actually met you at in twenty nineteen at the uh, Overland Expo in Flagstaff. And I remember walking up to that Jeep and just staring at that map and going, Wow, you know where this little guy has gone. That's pretty cool. So we're talking about the Jeep. So, Pan American trip. You already had the Jeep that you took on the Pan American. You were running around having fun in that uh, that Jeep. Correct. That's right,
0: Wade. I'd always wanted to have a soft top, no doors. You know, go have adventures, and and so I bought one while I was working in Canada. And and as the idea for the trip took shape, I just thought to myself, like, this is a great little four wheel drive. Why wouldn't I take it? There's there's
1: no reason that it can't work for the trip. But this thing was not particularly built out. This was not a you know somebody's idea of an overland vehicle or anything. It was just your basic soft top Jeep Wrangler. That's right. The
0: only modification I made to it is my brother and I built a security shelf in the back for about $50. You know, A piece of plywood bolted in so that when you lock the rear tailgate, there's kind of a locked compartment back there. Other than that, the Jeep was 100% bone stock. So I didn't have a fridge. I didn't have a rooftop tent. I had nothing like that.
1: So you're pretty much just throwing the camping gear you've got in the back of your Jeep and you're taken off. That's exactly what I did, Wade. I had kind of my hiking gear,
0: my, my backpacking stove and tent and sleeping bag and all of that. Yeah, threw it in the back, uh, a bag of clothes, a box of food, and that was it. That's kind of the ultimate freedom right there. I like that. Uh, I think it has defined my trip since then as well, Wade, where I really revel in the idea of like having less stuff. Less stuff to worry about, less stuff to maintain, less stuff to repair when it gets damaged. Just whenever there's less things, somehow I'm happier or I'm, I feel more centered to know like I only have a small number of things that are kind of like my concern
1: or that, you know, they're a burden on me. And so for Africa, you chose another Jeep Wrangler, but you intentionally built this one out a little bit differently. So take us through the basics of that build. I did, Wade, yeah. After the Alaska to Argentina trip,
0: I realized I had some priorities. One was much better sleeping setup. I didn't hate sleeping on the ground every day, but for Africa, it didn't seem like that was going to be ideal with all the animals. Um, And I really wanted to eat better food as well. So I wanted a better sort of kitchen and fridge setup. So they became kind of the central themes that I built the vehicle around. Um, so I installed a pop-up roof on the four-door Wrangler, the, the Ursa Minor pop-up. And that completely transformed the vehicle. I'd actually been camping in it for a week before I got it. And at that point, it's it's just sort of a regular car, you know, and you camp on the ground next to it. But suddenly, once you have this pop-up roof, the car is the house. The the car is everything. You you drive it and you sleep in it or on top of it. Um, and so that's a huge transformation. And then I installed a fridge and uh, a kitchen area at the back. And kind of along with that, some other systems that really helped as well, a a big drinking water tank and a filtration set up and a pump. So I actually had running drinking water inside that vehicle. Um, And then dual batteries as well, and a solar panel set up so that I had enough power for my fridge and all my electronics. So it, it really became about all of the like the living systems were really the focus of that vehicle.
1: Yeah, I can see on, especially in Africa and especially a trip for that length of time, that would be pretty important. So, you know, good uh, good plan there. But now you're in Australia, you're building out a totally different vehicle and a slightly different platform. So you went with a gladiator this time, right? That's right, Wade. Yeah, it, it appealed to me simply because it's a bit bigger. It means there's
0: more room for fuel tanks and more room for water tanks, which really become the limiting factors on a, a decent wilderness trip how many weeks can I stay out of civilization? It's basically until I run out of fuel or water.
1: Yeah. And if you're going to run the canning stock route, I mean, how long is that? That's that's a pretty good ways with very little ability to get
0: fuel. Exactly. I think it's about 1300 miles. I think it takes most people about a
1: month, 20 days to a month. But you're back to sleeping on the ground. You're doing a swag,
0: right? That's right, Wade. Yeah. I, I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do and and I realized, you know, if, if I'm going to travel in Australia, I should try to embrace the way that Australians do it. And here for, for generations, they've been using a thing called a swag, which is kind of like a heavy duty sleeping bag. It's, it's a big canvas sleeping bag. You more or less just roll it out on the ground and that's it. You're ready to go. Um, and I, I thought about it. If, if I don't take advantage of that while I'm here in Australia maybe I'll never get to because, you know, if I do a trip in Central Asia or the Middle East or a swag probably doesn't work very well there. So it's like Mm -hmm. now or never to take advantage of of some of the reasons that uh, I'm allowed to have while I'm here in Australia.
1: So why Jeeps for international uh, overlanding as opposed to Toyos or Land Rovers or maybe even something built on a Fuso? Like we said, Wade, the first one sort of happened a bit by accident. Um, and and
0: I didn't know what overlanding was, and so I didn't know what a Fuso was or anything like that. But but for me, the the main thing is that I am on a pretty tight budget. You know, I'm funding these trips from my own life savings. I'm not mm-hmm. a millionaire. I don't have unlimited budget. So for me, the idea of buying a Fuso or a Unimog, it's just impossible. You know, it's it's the same idea of going to the moon, where I just can't do that. So I need a relatively inexpensive vehicle. And that's where I think the Jeep Wrangler really shines. The the one that I drove to Argentina, I bought that thing for $5,000 cash, you know, and I drove it 40,000 miles and then I actually sold it for $5,000. So that vehicle cost cost me nothing, which I think for for an overland vehicle, I don't think you can actually do better than that. I think that's
1: perfect. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Basically, a free ride from one end of the hemisphere to the yeah, other. Yeah, and then uh, as far as the cost of the Jeep, yeah, and then for the Africa
0: expedition, you know, the, the four door Wrangler, it, it had that pop up roof, so that immediately attracted me to it. Um, it gets pretty decent mileage for what it is. It's really tough with its solid front and rear axle. It's fairly simple to be able to work on. So it kind of ticked a whole bunch of boxes that I was looking for. And again, I only paid $18,000 for that thing when, when it was stock, when I first bought it, because I bought it used. It was, I think, five years old. It had 60,000 miles on it. And so, again, as a regular guy who who wanted to achieve something really big, it actually seemed realistic and it seemed within reach. It, instead of looking at, you know, an 80 or a 90 or $100,000 land cruiser, where i'm like well that's it if i buy that vehicle i have nothing left and there will never be a trip
1: yeah i've watched a lot of your videos on bills and stuff and and you really kind of keep pounding that point you can spend all your money on the cool light bars and the this and the that and the all of that or you can spend your money on the adventure and so your philosophy seems to be spending the money on the adventure not on the frilly stuff that goes on uh, some of these vehicles that's right, Wade,
0: because for me, the only reason I want to have a vehicle is to have adventures. And so if if one precludes the other, then it's not worth it. And I'd rather go back to being like a backpacker and not even have a vehicle because then I can still have adventures. How do you fund your trips? It's all just my life savings, Wade. So basically while I'm at work, I squirrel away as much money as I can. So no eating out, no TV, no cell phone don't buy anything new, not even you know new clothes or anything like that. Always go to the thrift store. I just I save my pennies, and it takes years and years of dedication to put away enough money, so that then when I'm on the road, I basically am just spending down that savings account. What's it
1: roughly costing you to travel the way that you do?
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's really surprising, Wade. Um, and one of the things that always happens when you meet other overlanders, it doesn't take long before you start talking about money and travel expenses. Because because we're all money limited. And so, you know, you bump into someone in Africa and they say, oh, I really want to stay two years. I don't know if I have enough money. So, you know, we're all trying to make the money stretch. And and what I've learned when, when you bump into people, kind of it doesn't matter where they are in the world or where they're going. Virtually everyone who's driving a vehicle, a four-wheeled vehicle, they spend between about $1,200 a month and maybe up to about $2,500 a month. So somewhere in that range is basically what everybody's spending and that's for all expenses. That's food, gas, accommodation, absolutely everything, maintenance, visas. And, and it's. It, I know it's a pretty big range from 1,200 to let's say 2,500. And so then the question is, what's the difference? Why are some people spending half? And the two biggest factors are what do you do for food and what do you do for accommodation? So, if you want to stay in a hotel most nights, if you want to have a bottle of wine with dinner, if you want to eat out a lot, those things are going to make you spend over $2,000 a month, maybe even towards $3,000 a month, versus if you're going to camp every single night, if you're going to cook all of your own food and you're happy to eat how the locals eat, so kind of rice and beans and you know whatever animal they've slaughtered that day, all of those you're going to be spending peanuts on and especially when you wild camp, so you just find somewhere in the bush and set up camp mm. completely free to sleep. That's how you can get your budget way down. I met people actually traveling for $1,000 a month all in. And, and so then you realize that's actually not a lot of money. I spent the same amount of money per month to drive from Alaska to Argentina as I was spending before I left just to go to work every day. So by the time I was paying Mm -hmm. rent, I was paying insurance, I was paying gym membership, food, that was about $1,200 a month. And that's what I spent on
1: the road for those two years. But you can't go through these countries and do your own cooking all the time. I mean, you gotta try some of that local food, some of that street food, man. And the great thing about that,
0: Wade, is that street food's always really cheap. So my, Mm -hmm. my habit became, because I'm usually out camping wild and free, my habit became that I would always cook my own breakfast and I want to make a coffee anyway, so the stove's already hot. So then I, as I'm driving for the day, inevitably I pass through some sort of village or town. Maybe I have to fill up water or get gas or groceries or whatever. So while I'm in town, I should buy some street food for lunch because like you said, it's delicious. You get to banter with local. Mm. You get to have a good look around, see what's what. And then in the evening, I've probably driven out remote again. So then I'll cook my own dinner. So that sort of became my routine over time.
1: You put your Jeep on its side in Africa, didn't you? I did, Wade. Yeah, not my proudest moment. <laughs> uh, but the locals showed up and did some repairs for you. They did, Wade. Yeah, it was,
0: it was well, maybe the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, lapsed mm-hmm. in concentration, and so the Jeep smacked into a rock wall and then laid over on its side. Um, and in that moment, I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, it's my house, it's my security, it's my everything. Mm. And I had no idea I thought it was damaged beyond repair. How will I ever get it back on its wheels and And it's funny to realize a vehicle that isn't sitting on its wheels is a pretty useless vehicle. <laughs> you, can't, you know, I, I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't open the bed to sleep in it. I couldn't open the fridge to get food mm. out of it.. it It's essentially a big useless hunk of junk. Um, But yeah, locals materialized out of nowhere. And once they realized nobody was injured, they were like, well, who cares? It's just a car. We'll put it back on its wheels. And I I was a bit distraught, but they were like, "Eh, no big deal, whatever. Um, And so I used the winch to a tree and they pushed on the side and together it just came back up on its wheels. It actually was kind of a non-event in the end. Um, And there was some dints and scratches and the mirror was broken off. But all things considered, there was essentially no damage, uh, and I've been driving that Jeep ever since. <laughs> I think I've added another added. forty or fifty thousand miles since then, and nothing like nothing in the steering was damaged. No glass was broken. Um, some some guys on the side of the road in Uganda they welded the rear view mirror back on for me,
1: and it's been been good ever since. Uh, healthcare. You actually had malaria twice during these journeys. I don't think I've ever met anybody that had malaria twice to begin with, but how did you deal with that?
0: Uh, Well, first of all, I just want to say, I don't make it sound like it's something to be proud of. Getting malaria (laughs) twice is not a good thing. (laughs) What I learned, Wade, in Africa is that locals, they know what their local situation is. They know how to deal with whatever is going on in their area. And so there's a pharmacy in literally every village and every town. And if you stumble into that pharmacy and say the word malaria, they know exactly what to do. They're like, here are the tablets, take these. And it doesn't even matter if you don't speak the language. You know, it it just is that kind of down to earth. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a medicine you take. It, it's kind of called the cure. Um, and the first time around, it really did help a lot. And after four or five days, I felt okay again. And malaria was bad, but it wasn't kind of everything it's made out to be. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I'm tough. No problem. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. And then Uh, the second time around, uh, it was really, really bad. I lost about 20 pounds in five days. Um, I didn't eat, sleep, walk, talk or drink for five days. Um, And so I was taking not only the tablet form of the cure, but also uh, my German mechanic friend, was giving me injections in my backside twice a day on the side of the road um, to try and like double up on the
1: cure medicine.
0: Yeah, so you know, kind of the the local pharmacy option was really
1: what saved me and what works. You've got a ton of lessons learned. Obviously, you've written a few books. Talk to me a little bit about your books,
0: right, Wade? Yeah, I, I have written uh, two books uh, at the moment about my two separate journeys. So, The Road Chose Me, Volume mm-hmm. One. It covers a little bit of my life before the trip what led me to be inspired and set out on such a journey and then chronicles mostly the adventure and kind of the people that I met and the lessons that I learned and and I wanted it to be more than just I went here I did this you know read about me having adventure I wanted to try and share some of those lessons I learned or or some of those perspectives that I think People who live in different countries, the, the economy is different, the employment's different, safety is different, everything's different, and so they look at the world differently, and they have they sort of they're coming from a different place with different assumptions, and so I wanted to document that and and incorporate those lessons into who I am and how I'm going to live my life. So that's the first book called The Road Chose Me, Volume One, and then the second one, uh, The Road Chose Me, Volume Two, documents my Africa journey. And it is a much more detailed book. It goes into politics. It goes into aid. It goes into civil wars. It, and in between, it, it documents my trip and and the places that I went, the adventures that I had, and and some of the things we've discussed today. You know, it, it documents my crossing of the Congo. Talks about when I rolled the jeep, some of the bribery situations, and, and again, all the characters I met along the way, and. And what they taught me about life
1: or or how to view life sort of from a different angle that I'd never considered before. There's a quote from one of the books, a little bit deeper question here. This is not a vacation from my life. This is my life. How's the decision to become a full-time overlander changed who you are on the inside and how you see the world around you? I think, Wade, most of all, it has helped me to
0: connect to people um, much more deeply than than I ever had before. I think, especially with my training as an engineer and kind of like university and then get a job and commute to work and busy, 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 rush, rush, rush. I think I was focused on like the engineering challenges and the mechanical stuff and the the systems. And I'd never focused on people before. And so for me, especially in Africa, like the connection to people and just slowing down and listening to people and and having time to chat. And, you know, you're sitting around in the evening, I'm reading a book next to the Jeep and a guy just wanders out of the bush. He's like, hello, how are you? And and just offer him, you know, a cup of tea and then sit and talk to him for an hour. And then he's, okay, goodbye. And then he just walks off into the bush again. And, and, (laughs) And that kind of moment, I think, before I had ever done this kind of thing, I, I wouldn't have been open to that or I would have been uneasy or it would have felt kind of not something that I would enjoy doing. But now when I look back, those were some of the best moments of the whole trip. Just the complete random people story and people interaction. Yeah, so for me, I think I've become much more of a, of a people first person and, and much more of a like slow down and listen
1: And just have time, have time for people. You're an incredibly interesting person. And obviously, you've led an incredibly interesting life. How can folks who want to know more about you find out about you? Well, thanks, Wade. First of all, I appreciate that. Um,
0: (laughs) And I do like to say, too, I genuinely believe that I am just an ordinary guy. You know, I I don't write for National Geographic. I, I don't have millionaires for parents. I just became determined to make these dreams come true and, and I make mistakes along the way and I have doubts and, and I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I think what I try to tell folks is just go for it, just focus on the adventures and, and don't be afraid of making some mistakes along the way because in hindsight, sometimes they're the best parts anyway. But yeah, if, if people would like to learn more or follow along, I am very active on social media. So, all across social media, my name is The Road Chose Me. So, that's Instagram and then Facebook and on YouTube as well. I'm putting out not only videos about the adventures that I have, but I really want to help teach people how they can have adventures as well. So, I put out a whole series of videos about practical things like how to cross borders, how to deal with bribery, how to outfit your vehicle how to save money for trips like this. Kind of, I guess, part of the philosophy or the ideas behind overlanding to to help people get out there and have their own adventure.
1: So a final question.
0: What does the road chose me mean to you? That's a really difficult question. I feel like different weeks and months, it means different things to me. I feel like for me, when I say the road chose me, I kind of imply or I kind of mean that like, the adventure held out its hand to me and said come with me Uh, like come on this journey with me and it was up to me to sort of take the step or take the leap and say okay i will do that it's almost in my mind like the adventure is there waiting for you to take it you just have to take the step so in a sense sometimes i think about like the adventure is the one actually driving this thing forward and the adventure wants to happen and wants to be had You just have to take the leap. So, And and I toyed with, at one point, instead of being the road chose me, it was going to be some sort of play on words of leap, like take the leap or leap into adventure or Mm. some sort of like, all you have to do is cross the threshold and then the adventure will unfurl. But it is up to you or it is up to me to, to make sure I take that step.
1: Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're quite the inspiration to all of us. And I do appreciate your time.
0: Oh, thanks very much, Wade. I, I really appreciate that. And it, it's been a real pleasure talking to you as well. And, and it's funny, you know, it gets me stoked again on what I love and what I want to focus on. So I thank you for that, for, for helping to remind me that it is about the adventure and it is about getting out
1: there and, and meeting new people and having new experiences. What a life Dan has led. You really should go check out his blog. At theroadchosme.com and his YouTube channel with the same name. And if you want a fun and adventurous read, I've read all his books and love them. And I think you would too. Check out the show notes on the Guy GPS blog for links to all of Dan's channels, and don't forget to pick up your discount on a Guy GPS premium membership there too. Thanks for listening in. This is Wade. See you next time.